Well, in the beginning of the story of mankind, before the fall of the human race and before the world and everything in it became corrupted, there was a garden called Eden. And in that garden, the first man and the first woman had a life that we've all been looking for ever since. They walked with God. They literally talked with Him and walked with Him and enjoyed His very presence with them. We begin a new chapter today in the life of our church and in the life of our journey. And we also uh, begin a new series as we continue to walk our way through the Psalms. Uh, today, we come to Psalm 50. And we're calling the new series for the next eight weeks, Walking with God. So today, we're walking with God in worship. And we will look closely as we walk verse by verse and step by step through Psalm chapter 50. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to tackle a couple of big questions. One big question is, how do we hold life together when all the world around us is falling apart? As, as you know, we gather together today in troubled times. Uh, it appears that the world is literally falling apart. Uh, we continue to battle COVID-19. COVID and I know many of you are watching this uh, broadcast of our service today uh, because you don't feel safe to come back out into the public. And we want you to know today that that's okay. Um, we love you and we count you here with us even as you worship with us through this medium. And so thank you for joining again with us. But COVID-19 is not the only challenge that we face in our world today. We're also battling tornadoes and storms that seem to be uh, just striking everywhere at random around us today. Uh, as you know, protest marches and demonstrations uh, continue to signal a cry for justice uh, throughout our land. And the trauma and the pain and the destruction and the anger and the outcry that we hear today, as you know, is not something that's new. In fact, it seems like that with every generation and with every year, uh, the, the, the trauma seems to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, there are millions of different perspectives, but basically there are two positions that everyone holds today. You're either a spectator uh, stumbling through life, giving armchair opinions and feelings, or another position is you're a participant in the battles and in the struggles of life, and you're feeling the pressure of making decisions that may lead to the trajectory of a new day in history. But you're probably in one of those two positions in life today. So is your perspective an armchair perspective, or is your perspective a battlefield stance. And again, over the next week, we're, ne next eight weeks, we're going we're gonna to constantly be asking questions like that for us to consider. So now we move directly to Psalm 50. Asaph was one of David's three choir leaders. He was the Levitical choir director, and he was the director of music 
for the corporate worship experience of Israel. His goal was to stir God's people to true, authentic worship. And so look for that as we move through Psalm 50 today. Um, Walk with me as I read through Psalm 50 now. The superscript says, A Psalm of Asaph. Psalm 50, verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to receive my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil. And your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Thanks be to God today for his holy word. Well, Psalm 50 teaches us at least four facts, four things about walking with God in worship. So again, let's look at them. First of all, God desires worship. In verses 1 through 6, we see this. We see that God loves wholehearted worship from all people. Psalm 50 is a psalm about judgment. Uh, There's only one perfect judge, and that's God. And God calls all people together, but he has a specific word for people who are his, for the people of Israel in this psalm. As creator and sustainer of everything, 
God is the one who walked with man in the perfect garden environment in the beginning until man messed up. When man messed up, that changed everything. It created an environment where God alone is the only one who is holy. God is the only one who's perfect. He's the only one who's righteous. He's the only one who is just. And that says that you and I, just as the people of Israel, are not holy and not righteous and not just and not perfect. So do you know this holy God? Do you know the God who is holy and perfect and righteous and just? Because if you do know Him, you can't help but worship Him. There is none more perfect. There's none more powerful than God. For the psalmist, God the Lord spoke and summoned all people to acknowledge his presence. God deserves our worship. In our culture, it's difficult for us to realize the power of lordship. We live in what we call a democracy, and following the directives of a Lord is not something that we can easily identify with. In fact, we think that you know, we should have a vote in everything. We should be able to go along with majority rules. But that's not true in the mind of God. And we have to understand that God is perfect. And so we can't vote on whether we want to follow him or not. Think about that. Let that settle for just a moment in your mind. Verse 2 acknowledges the fact that there is none more beautiful, not only more powerful, but there's none more beautiful or more perfect than God. The desire he has for worshipers is not at all about his ego. It's about what's best for humans like you and me. And it's hard for us to understand this, but uh, our political system is, is built on us getting our way, us voting for the person who's most popular and who will do things that we feel like are in our best interest. God's heart is totally opposite from that. It's totally different from that. God attracts worshipers because He is perfect. He wants us to be with Him just as well as being like Him. And the more we truly know Him as He is, the more we're called to worship Him, and the more then we become like Him. I'm sure you're aware that, that beauty is attractive, and when the psalmist uses this term to describe God here, he's calling us to the beauty of a perfect, holy, magnificent God. Think with me just for a moment about something that is beautiful. In fact, think about the most beautiful thing you've ever seen or maybe even the most beautiful thing that you've ever imagined. Some would say the most beautiful thing I've ever seen or imagined would be the eyes of my newborn baby. Some would say maybe the most beautiful thing I've ever seen is the, the worn and tattered hands of a World War II veteran. Some might say that the most beautiful thing they see is 
having financial security and not having to worry about their needs being met for the future. Some might even say the most beautiful thing I could experience or imagine would be being totally at peace, not having any worries whatsoever, having a peaceful soul. Whatever you fill in that blank will always fall immeasurably short of the beauty and the majesty of God. And God desires worship for the benefit of mankind because He is most beautiful and when we know Him, we're attracted to Him. And it's to our advantage to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's the way life was designed from the very beginning. And when you live life outside of these boundaries, when you sidestep the audience of God and the beauty of God and sacrifice to experience true worship of God, it's like steering a train off the tracks. It's disastrous. Wrecks happen when trains run off the tracks and people get hurt and damage is done. And that's why the psalmist saw God's judgment as a warning for us to stay on the tracks of intimate, personal, true worship. In verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 50, the psalmist calls God's people to judgment. In fact, God himself calls people to judgment. Verse 3 says, Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. God is the perfect judge because He is the creator of life and He's the creator of everything that we know in heaven and on earth and above the heavens and above the earth. God created everything. And so only He has a right to judge. In our bridge groups this week, we looked at a passage from 1 Peter where God is defined and described as an impartial judge. That means he doesn't make any mistakes. That means his standard is secure and solid and it doesn't change. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, the Bible says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, most of the time when we think of judgment, we think about God judging people who are far from him, people who are not even acknowledging him. But the Bible consistently from Psalms to 1 Peter tells us that God is going to judge his people, his loved ones, his covenant people. He is always identified as what is good and what is right. And so God is full of wisdom and God is full of truth. And he is powerful to execute not only judgment, but also to execute sentences against people who violate his law, who sin. If you look at Psalm 50, verse 5, you see that God's people are his covenant people. That means God has a special place in his heart for his people, 
And he's carved out a special place for those who would love him and follow him. And that means that God is always going to be doing his part in redeeming mankind. His covenant is drawn between his faithful ones. So for those in the day of the psalmist, that meant two things. First of all, it meant making atonement for the sins that God's people committed. And God regularly set into motion a process for making restitution, making atonement for sins committed. But it also meant that God expected obedient repentance, turning away from sinful behavior and turning behavior to follow His standard and to follow what would represent His character. In other words, making sacrifices for sins was important while making changes in lifestyle and in the daily walk of a person in following God was just as important. One was not any more important or any less important than the other. So for you and me today, religiously making sacrifices without God-pleasing behavior is like worshiping from the armchair position rather than worshiping on the battlefield. You know, sitting at the armchair and worshiping from the position of the armchair and not engaging our heart fully in worship is downright destructive. That's why the psalmist moves on to a second point, a second fact about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and that is that God condemns false worship. In verses 7 through 15, we have examples of this. First of all, God challenges worshipers in verse 7. Look at it. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So Psalm 50 sets up a courtroom scene with God himself being the judge. God called his people, he summoned his people to appear before him and to answer for the type of worship that they were lifting up before him. And he reminded them pointedly that their worship was lukewarm worship. It wasn't worship that was coming from their heart. And God rejected their half-hearted worship. And so He does today. God condemns half-hearted worship. Verse 8, He says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. In other words, Going through the motions of worship, offering sacrifices, is something that the people in the psalmist day should be doing, and you and I today should be doing. We should be offering up our worship to God, but not in an inauthentic way. And the inauthentic way is symbolized by the way we actually live out our life. Are we showing love to God? Are we walking with God in worship in our daily lives that represent the fact that our worship is truly from our heart flowing to Him. 
See, those who claim to know God and go through the motions of worship without heartfelt praise and obedience will be judged by God. And that's serious business. We should take that very seriously. Attending church services that we call worship just to check off the box, reading our Bible every day and saying prayers every day just to check off the box, sharing in the Lord's Supper without communing with Jesus and recognizing the fact that we enter into His suffering and we celebrate the victory that we have over sin because of His sacrifice for us. If we're not doing that with all of our heart and truly engaging in worship and in daily prayer and in daily Bible reading with Him, then we're no better off than this audience that God called into judgment before the psalmist. It's incriminating behavior before God to worship Him without our heart being truly tied to Him. So when you know and see all that He does to demonstrate that love that He has for us, we can't help but be drawn to adore Him, drawn to glorify Him, drawn to worship Him. There may be times in our life when it seems like by outward appearances that our worship is proper and acceptable and even skilled and beautiful. But as God observes it, He sees it for what it really is. He sees us for who we really are. And half-hearted, apathetic praise was in the day of the psalmist and is today an abomination to God. It's not acceptable. And there's no excuse for it. There's no reason for it. External ritual is worthless to God. Empty routine is worthless to God. And in the day of the psalmist, believers were held, worshipers were held at the highest standard before God. And today, you and I are held at the highest standard before God as well. It's interesting that that Jesus addressed this topic, didn't he? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, here's what Jesus said about this style of worship. He said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, false worship starts by asking, what's in this for me? What am I getting out of this? How little can I get by in offering my service and my worship and my resources to God? and feel good about myself? How how can I impress other people by attending worship services and being involved in worship experiences and really not engage fully with my heart in that experience? See, false worship is about you. It's about your feelings. It's about what you can gain from it. And nothing could be farther from the heart of true worship than that because worship is not about me, it's not about you. Worship is about 
God, our Heavenly Father. God, our beautiful, majestic, sovereign, perfect, holy God. So, worshiping is mandatory. And we should want to worship. But worship is also critical in that how we worship is just as, if not more critical and more crucial than going through the practice of worship itself. So the psalmist put highest value on the priority of having an authentic heart connection to God in worship and making sure that there was intimate interaction between the worshiper and between God. So what would that look like today? Well, it looks like a number of things. First of all, it means you have to know God. You have to be connected with His heart. Your heart has to be connected with His heart. And then you listen to His voice every day speak to you. And for us, that would be through His Word. God speaks like a megaphone to us through His Word. We pray to God in faith, believing that He hears our prayer and He will answer our prayer when we're connected to Him in His Word and when our heart is connected with Him in our very breath of life. And then we want to be with other people who are fellow believers in God through Jesus Christ with us. And so we fellowship with other believers, authenticating our worship experience. And then we take what we experience from God and we share it with people around us in the world. And they not only hear our words about worship and about knowing God and loving God and serving God and following Jesus, but they see that in our life. And they're attracted to worship the same God that we're attracted to. That's what authentic worship looks like. It begins and ends with making all of life for us today about Jesus. And that leads me to the third fact about walking with God in authentic worship. <clears throat> and that's found in Psalm 50, verses 16 through 22. God requires true worship. In verses 16 through 20, God judges disobedience severely. He gives examples of doctrinal profession without a life change that comes along to back up that doctrinal profession. He points out things, examples like theft and adultery and slander and gossip. What do these demonstrate? Well, they demonstrate if you profess to worship God and trust God and you're a thief or an adulterer or a slanderer or a gossiper, then it points out that you're hypocritical. But there's more to it than that. In, in verse 18, the psalmist says, if you see a thief, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. In other words, you're seeing hypocrisy take place and you're standing by and you're not doing anything about it. That's just as bad as committing the sin itself, the Bible says. So like many of you, uh, I, I grew up in an environment that was very hypocritical. I mean, it was common for people to attend church on Sunday and live like the devil from Monday to Saturday. 
And some of you have heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. If you are not showing love to God on Monday through Saturday, both with your actions and with your reactions, if you're not showing love to God Monday to Saturday, what you do on Sunday is really not worship at all. It's not. In fact, it's an abomination to God Himself. Verses 21 to 22. Verses 21 to 22 remind us that you can have a view of God that is inaccurate. See, it's not only an abomination to God to live as a hypocrite, but it destroys the witness of the church and it destroys the witness of the gospel for a person to profess to be walking with God and the actions of our life showing something that's totally different. In verse 21, the psalmist says, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. See, these worshipers had a very pitiful view of God. They identified God as being just like them, of having characteristics just like Him. And God said in verse 21, you thought that I was one like yourself, but I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. Mark this, verse 22, then who forget, though you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The judgment of God on sin is real. And it's terrible. In fact, it must be taken seriously. Now you, you may be thinking, well, I'm not guilty of theft or adultery or slander or gossip. But if you're like me, I know you struggle with sin. It's there somewhere. And in order to be a valid, walking with God, worshiper of God, we need to constantly be bold enough to ask God to point out any sin that's blocking our relationship with Him and standing between us and Him, having a heart-to-heart, -heart, genuine, authentic worship experience. For example, let me ask you a question relative to today. Where do you stand on racism and social injustice? Now, I know if some of you are honest, when I say that, there are thoughts that come into your mind that say, Ronnie, what are you talking about that for in this context? What kind of thoughts have you shared over the past month about racism and injustice? Tony Evans said this week, and I agree with him, quote, racism isn't bad. It isn't a mistake. It's sin. The answer isn't sociology. It's theology. End of quote. And I totally agree with that statement. I've said this before and I'll say it many times more, I'm sure, that racism in any form is sin. There's no place in the human race for it at all. 
See, all people are created by God to be equally valued and equally loved from the womb to the tomb, from the cradle to the grave. So for me, I must, I must ask myself this question. Is this comment that I make an armchair perspective or is it, is it a, a battlefield stance? So I want you to join with me today in asking God to convict you of any sin. Just let the Holy Spirit run wild through your spirit. Is there any sin of omission or commission that I've sinned against God that's blocking my audience with Him? Does anything exist between God and me that would keep my worship experience from being truly authentic? See, the greatest news in the world comes right out of verse 21. The greatest news in the world is that, that Jesus Christ took this judgment that God is talking about here that I deserve and that you deserve on Himself. That is worship-worthy news. Verse 22 says He was torn to pieces. Do you see it? Jesus was torn to pieces. A crown of thorns was placed on His head and buried into His head. He was nailed to a Roman cross in agony. He was crucified. Died the most painful death that a human being can can die. He was torn to pieces for you and me, but that's not the agony that Jesus experienced to the greatest degree. The greatest agony that He experienced was taking on Himself my sin and your sin and the sin of the whole world. He had never felt that agony before because He had never sinned before. And He took the weight. God placed the weight of all sin upon Him. Doesn't that just draw you to lovingly want to worship God and lovingly want to praise the name of Jesus? As I said before, that's the greatest news that the world could ever receive. I asked you earlier, what's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen or ever imagined? Could it be this? Could it be this picture that God in His beauty chose to become a man and take on the shame, the disgrace of a cruel trial, false trial, be convicted not of anything He had done wrong to break a law of man, but to break a law of injustice? and unjustly put on a cross and murdered for you and me. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. The gift of God's salvation is the most beautiful picture I believe that a mind could ever conceive. John chapter 3 says it this way, For God so loved the world, in verse 16, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We deserve to perish, but God has given us, in exchange for our sin, 
His salvation. What a beautiful picture. But don't stop there. In verse 17, the Bible says, For God did not send His Son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The salvation of the Lord is available to you and me through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And to know Him and to receive that gift draws us to worship like a magnet of His. If you've never received that gift of God's salvation, He offers it to you right now to exchange your judgment that you deserve for His salvation and freedom, pardon from the penalty of that sin. He wants to exchange your sin for His salvation and He wants to do that for you right now if you've never trusted Him, if you've never received that gift. So even right now in this very moment, you can bow your heart before God and you can pray and say, God, I don't understand everything there is to, to know about what I've just heard, but I want to receive that gift of salvation. I admit the fact that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. I repent of my sin and I want to turn away from my sin and I want to give my life to you right now. Right now, this very minute. So save me. Save me by the power of your grace and your mercy and let it wash over me and save me. And then God, help me. Help me to want to live the rest of my life for you like that verse says in John 3.17, set me free so that I can live for you. Receive it now. And if you have received that gift of salvation, worship like it and live like it. Starting now, right now, this very minute, let your act of worship thrive by walking with God. And finally this morning, the fourth and final fact about walking with God in worship is that God saves true worshipers. I pray that some of you just prayed that prayer to receive Christ and become a worshiper of God, become a true worshiper of God, because God saves true worshipers. And this is where this psalm really gets exciting. In verses 14 and 15, we're introduced to the fact that even though we live today in a day of trouble, and even though we live in a day of heartache and hardship, it's the perfect time to be alive. There's never been a better time in history to be alive. And making all of life about Jesus creates a platform for you to live above every circumstance on this earth. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I pray today that that will be your heart and your life. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Do you see it? God delivers us from our sin, so that we can glorify Him in our life and in our worship. Verse 23 says exactly the same thing. The one who offers thanksgiving as His sacrifice glorifies me. Glorifies me. 
to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This can be you today. Just like this can be me today. God blesses obedience with the light. You don't have to work your way to God. In fact, you can't work your way to God. That's not what this verse is saying. You don't work your way to God and you don't even work to please God. That's not the way it works. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, you have to get this thing in order. You're convicted that you're a sinner and your sin has separated you from God and you confess your sin before God and you accept God's salvation. That's the beginning of the relationship with God. That's the foundation for worshiping God, the gift, the free gift that He's given you. But then because He gives you that free gift, you want to worship Him. You can't help but worship Him. You can't help but walk with Him when you understand in fullness that great gift that He's given you. And then you understand that you are His workmanship. You are created perfectly by God just like you are, just for who you are, so that you can give your life back to Him and consistently, faithfully walk with Him as an example of a worshiper of Him. That's the way the process is supposed to work. So your actions show that you know Him and you are obediently worshiping Him as you get to day to day to get to know Him better and better and better. What an awesome psalm. What an awesome message the psalmist presented in his day that is so applicable to where you and I are today. So let's look at three application points as we close today. First of all, I want to challenge you to join me today to worship with a true relationship with God. A true relationship with God. This is where life starts. This is where we come from the experience in Genesis chapter 3 where man blew it, man sinned against God. And by the grace of God, we have life restored to us as best as it can be lived on this sinful world in walking with God. So make sure that you know Him and that you are showing constant love to Him. Application point number two. Worship obediently with a dedicated life. You see, it's one thing to say we know God and to say we're worshiping God. But sincere, private, daily worship leads to knowing God and lays the foundation for praised-filled corporate worship. And we're enjoying that today. We're enjoying being able to experience worship with other believers. And that's fantastic. And thirdly, walking with God in worship means to worship 
intimately with him with an open heart. That means I'm saying to God constantly, God, melt me, mold me, make me like you. Change my heart, O oh God. Thank you for the way that you have modeled for me what it means to live and help me to follow that model. So how do I hold life together when the whole world around me is falling apart? Worship God in spirit and in truth. Our family genuinely loves to do life together. We love to walk life through life together. When our two adult children married and went their separate ways, we were living in three different cities. And the first year after that scenario began to develop, I remember we, that spring, first year after we had all gone our separate ways and both of our kids were married, we decided to come back together again at a Bible conference in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was such a wonderful experience because we were back together again. And it didn't matter whether we were walking the halls of the conference center, which was a massive conference center, or walking on the streets and in and out of the shops on the city streets. We were happy and content because we were walking together. The next summer, we met in the mountains of North Carolina for a long weekend, and whether hiking the trails or playing games past midnight, we were together and we were happy and content because we were walking together. The next summer, we all flew from different destinations and we met together in Las Vegas and we, we, we traveled together through the Grand Canyon. And I remember as we as we went through adventure after adventure in the, the Grand Canyon, uh, walking together through those trails, whether it was hiking or whether it was riding in the car, whether it was hanging out in uh, the rooms that we were staying in. We were happy and we were content because we were walking through life together. As much as we as family members love to be together, as much as we love walking through life together, Walking with God daily in daily worship and weekly in corporate worship is mega times more magnificent than that and unimaginable than that. So my challenge for us today is make sure, make sure you are walking with God in spirit and in truth as we worship Him. God, I thank You today that You're calling some people to come and walk with You and follow You and know You and authentically join life together with You. Maybe, maybe for the first time, and maybe there are people who have said yes for the first time. And I pray that you would bless them abundantly for making that choice. And then, God, for others of us who have been walking with you for years, I pray that as you've challenged our heart today, that we would more than ever make sure that our 
walk in life is consistent with our walk with you and that the sacrifices of worship that we make to you are the best that we can possibly offer. Cutting no corners, making no excuses, confessing sin when you convict us of sin, and living life as an open book of a life well lived walking with you. God, we pray for your protection and your blessing over us as we continue this journey of walking with you through life. In Jesus' name we pray now. Amen.